Hello, I'm Chris Kreitschew, and this is New Rust Station, a show about the Rust programming language and the people who use it. This is episode 31, FFI Deep Dive. Before we dive in, Parity is back sponsoring the show because they want to hire you to come work in Rust with them. Parity is advancing the state of the art in decentralized technology, and they're using Rust to do it, leaning hard on its trifecta of performance, reliability, and productivity. They're building cutting-edge tech in areas like WebAssembly and peer-to-peer networking. Two of the larger projects they're working on are Substrate, which is a framework for building blockchains, and Polkadot, which is a platform leveraging blockchain tech for scaling and interoperability in decentralized systems. If that sounds interesting to you, check out their jobs at parity.io slash jobs. Also, one quick bit of news from the community. The Colorado Gold Rust call for proposals is open from now through July 15th. So if talking to and hanging out with a bunch of Rust stations, almost certainly including me in Colorado this fall, sounds like fun, please submit a proposal. Now, let's dig in. This is a big, thick, hefty episode. A couple episodes back, I talked about doing CFFI from Rust. Today, we're going to flip that around and see how you can use Rust for FFI from other languages. Languages, plural, because everything I cover here is equally relevant to using Rust as the FFI layer for Elixir or Python as it is for integrating Rust into an existing C or C++ code base. And in that respect, this is actually much more interesting than just calling with a C API from Rust, because it lets Rust provide safe superpowers for other languages. There are two big things we need to cover today. The first is exposing Rust functions and data types to other programs via the extern mechanics we talked about last time. And the second is how we can do that with rich data types safely. I want to note throughout all of this that I'm very indebted to Jake Golding's FFI Omnibus, which I mentioned last time and is of course linked in the show notes. We're going to start by talking about making Rust functions available to other programs, and everything else will build on this. This is essentially the inverse of what we talked about in episode 29. Then we were defining Rust signatures for types or functions coming in from other languages, specifically from C APIs. What we want to do now is go the other direction. For example, We might be working in a language like Elixir or Ruby or JavaScript or Python, and we might have some hot loop that we needed to go much, much faster. And because Rust can expose a C foreign function interface, you can use Rust instead of C for native extensions to languages like those. So we're going to work through this in three parts, numbers, strings, and then other more complicated types where that last chunk is going to be the main part of the episode. For anything more complicated than a number, we'll also talk about what you have to do to be memory safe as well. And included in that discussion will be a conversation about opaque pointers, which are our most useful tool for safe interop. Once again, you should definitely take a look at the sample code in the repository for the show. I've made the show notes work as a library, which you can dynamically link against from anything which expects a CABI. In particular, you'll want to look at the code in the E031 directory, which has a mod.rs and also an E031.c and E031.h file. You'll also want to look at the builds.rs file in the root, which includes a very, very simple setup for building those C files into an executable you can run, which demonstrates that this stuff actually works. So to try it out, check out the code for the show and run cargo build, and you'll get a binary file in the root called link against rust, which you can run to see that it does what I claim it does. 
Unfortunately, that only works on Unix-like operating systems, which have Clang installed, because I don't have a good way or the time to set this up on Windows. But you should be able to make it work on the genuinely great and constantly improving Windows subsystem for Linux. Now, let's talk through how you expose anything for consumers of a Rust-based C-style API. To make a function available this way, we have to do a couple things. First, we need to update our crate definition. By default, Rust library crates are built as quote lib crates. That means they're Rust compatible. They could be in any number of formats, the compiler gets to decide which. However, lib crates are not C compatible. So in our crate definition, in the lib section, we write crate type equals open square braces, C die lib, close square braces. Assuming you're on at least Rust 1.10 anyway. Before that, you had to use just dilib, not C dilib. This creates a dynamically linked library artifact, which is designed to be linked into a C program or something expecting a C-style ABI. If you run cargo build after doing this, you'll see a dynamically linkable library file for your OS in the target output directory. .so on Linux, .dilib on macOS, and .dll on Windows. Now, you may have noticed that I said to write this as a toml array in the crate type value, and that's because you can actually pass multiple values there if you like. So if you want to build your library so it can be consumed either as a dynamically linked library for CABI consumers or for statically linking into a Rust program, you can do that. You would just write crate type equals open square brackets lib comma c dilib close square brackets. And then if you do cargo build and look in target slash debug, you'll see both an rlib file and the appropriate dynamically linkable library file for your platform. Second, as with last time, we're going to use either the standard OS raw or libc libraries to make sure we're writing types that do what we need them to rather than just using Rust's own native types. And in general, libc, some c-type, is just another name for standard OS raw, some c-type. The big difference between the two is that libc doesn't require standard, so that's the one you're going to reach for if you're working in a context where you need to build your library in no standard mode, for example, embedded environments. Third, you need to mark each function that we're going to make accessible to non-Rust callers with the noMangle attribute. This tells the Rust compiler not to do the normal name smashing it does, where it takes all the information about a given function, including its module, its generic monomorphizations, and so on, and turns that into a goofy-looking, very distinct name for each way that the function can be invoked. If you pull down the source code for the show and do a cargo build, you can actually inspect the output for the C dilib it now creates using the obj, that is object, dump, or nm tools, and those let you look at the symbols in a given binary file. If you do that, you'll notice a bunch of names that look sort of like names from the Rust standard library, but mangled. You'll also notice a couple of functions whose names aren't mangled if you search on down through, add in Rust, and so on. These are the functions you can see in the show notes for this episode, which are publicly exported with the pub and extern modifiers and marked with the no mangle attribute. Okay, that's it for the basic mechanics. So now we can start seeing what it looks like to put this into practice, and we'll start with some simple numeric examples. Happily, numbers are pretty easy. In fact, for numeric work, it's safer and easier extending other languages with Rust than it was reaching out to C APIs from Rust, because in this case, Rust is control of everything that matters, including things like overflow. We're not doing anything unsafe here. That'll be a bit different when we talk about more complicated types in a minute, but, well, we'll get there in a minute. In the show notes, you'll find a super simple example of this, addition. And we just write 
pub extern C function add in Rust with the arguments A, which is a C int, and B, which is a C int. And this returns a C int. And the whole body of the function is A plus B. There shouldn't be anything surprising about that if you listen to episode 29. We're using the C int types to make sure we're using the types of the sizes C consumers expect. And that'll be the same whether those C consumers are C or C++ or Elixir or JavaScript or whatever else. It's pub so that external consumers of the crate can see it. And it's extern C so that it's guaranteed to have the right ABI like we talked about in episode 29. It's marked with the no mangle attribute so that the name ends up in that format that is needed for linking it as a C compatible library. And for this simple case, that's all we have to do, at least on the Rust side. On the consuming side, we'll also need to declare it with a C declaration. Extern int add in Rust with the arguments int A and int B. If you don't do that, your C library or binary simply won't compile because it won't know that something outside itself is supposed to be supplying that symbol. It's also marked with extern, but in the C case, that means the function has external linkage and storage duration. The details of that aren't really relevant for us here, but they are worth understanding if you're going to be diving deep into this. These kinds of numeric calculations are a prime place where Rust can be a super helpful way to speed up a scripting language. Not addition, that's normally implemented natively anyway, but if you have some large computationally intensive task you need to do, and it's reasonably isolated or can be reasonably isolated from other code, and your profiling shows you that there is in fact a hotspot there, don't over-optimize needlessly, then writing a native Rust extension to do that work can often be a perfect solution. Of course, in many cases, you're dealing with something like an array of data or a string, so we'll need to figure out how to pass along more sophisticated types across the FFI boundary. Strings are a good place to start. They are very common and they're vector-based, so a lot of the things we say here will translate directly into other types. And there are two ways we need to be able to deal with them. When Rust owns them is handing them off to a C API, and when the C API owns them and Rust is dealing with them. For this, we're going to use what at first blush probably seems like a simple example, concatenating two strings. However, as anyone who has worked with strings at a low level knows, doing this correctly and safely is harder than it seems, which I was reminded of quite thoroughly as I wrote this episode. Rarely have I been so grateful for Rust's string handling. We're going to have a function, concat strings, which takes in two strings from a C ABI and returns another string back to that C ABI. Remember, this works equally well for any language. We're using C itself, but anything which can consume a C API could do the same. There is a full code sample for all of this in the show notes, and you should read it. Here I'm just going to talk through the function signature and the things we need to do to make it work correctly at a high level. The Rust function signature is no mangle, pub extern C function, concat strings, with the first argument being a constant pointer to a C char, and the same for the second, and it returns a mutable pointer to a C char. The reason we're taking pointers to C chars is that C doesn't actually have a notion of strings as such. It just has arrays of characters. A string is just a pointer to an array, terminated by a null character. Now, since we're taking in data from C, this is totally untrustworthy. We need to start by checking that the pointers aren't null, and then we need to convert the C-style array of chars into a type Rust can work with safely. So in an unsafe block, we'll start by asserting that both pointers are not null, which means that if either of them is, we'll crash the program. And then we'll use Rust's C-stir from P 
PTR or pointer to convert the pointer into Rust's special type for C strings. C stir is the reference type and C string is the owned type. They're analogous to stir and string respectively. Once you have a C stir or C string, you can convert that into a regular Rust string, but you have to pay a cost there because we also have to check that it's valid UTF-8. We don't need to do that here because we're just sending it right across the FFI boundary again. But if we were going to work with this string internally in Rust code beyond just doing this little concatenation dance, it would be worth doing that. In this case, we take those two C stirs and turn them into slices of U8. We drop each one's terminating null byte. We concatenate them together as well as a single null byte after both of them using the standard slice concat method. Then we create a new own C string from the result. This allocates the space on the Rust side for the string, which we'll need to go ahead and deal with in a minute. For sending it back across the boundary, we'll call into raw on the C string, and we return that. That is the function which turns it into a mutable pointer to a C char that C libraries need to interact with this. Two important notes here. This API isn't what we would call the right or the idiomatic way to do this in C. Normally, you would have the caller pass in a pointer to a buffer with enough space allocated for the concatenated results, and you would return an error code with zero for success and a different number otherwise. However, it's a useful example, and you will do things like this. So I did it this way, and you'll see more of why in a minute. Second, we're returning a mutable pointer because we're handing it back to a C API to do with as it will. Even if we declared it as char const star const here, meaning a constant pointer to a constant character, the C caller could choose to ignore that. Modern C compilers will warn you about this, and you should listen if they do, but they won't stop you. You can cast that constancy away. Now, the last thing to say about strings here, Rust allocated this string the concatenated string that is, so Rust needs to free it. If you call free on the C side, or do you use the normal garbage collection mechanics in a language with a garbage collector, you will cause a memory leak because the internal layout of a C string is a box of a slice of unsigned 8-bit integers. And we need to make sure that the box gets deallocated correctly, not just the unsigned integer array. We handle this by providing a free Rust string function on the Rust side, and that uses the cstring from raw function to consume the pointer, and once we've done that, it makes sure everything gets dropped appropriately when it goes out of scope, which it does immediately because we don't do anything else with it. And again, read the show notes. This will be much clearer if you look at the actual code samples. This is the same basic pattern we're going to use for all rich data types going back and forth across the C FFI boundary in Rust. Arguments coming in as pointers need to be checked that they're not null, since null pointers are not part of safe Rust. And when we allocate on the Rust side and hand that back to the C side, we also need to free on the Rust side. These kinds of things are constraints you must document and document loudly for any consumers of your library, including yourself. This is the key with all unsafe code, including, by definition, all FFI. You have to do all the work that the Rust compiler normally does for you in safe Rust. Moving on to structs, basically everything I just said about strings applies identically, which shouldn't be a big surprise since string is a struct. Imagine my go-to example of a point with X and Y fields on it. We can define that so that it can be shared across the FFI boundary freely by writing it with C as an annotation on the struct definition. 
Then we can write the corresponding C struct definition and use it on either side of the language boundary. In this mode, we can start by declaring a point on the C side and initializing its values to whatever we want. Then, assuming we have actually initialized them, if we want to translate it from one location to another, but on the Rust side, we can write a point translate function, just the same way we wrote our concat strings function above. No mangle, pub, extern, function, point, translate, which takes a point, which is a mutable pointer to a point, and by x being a C float and by y being a C float. And because it's mutating point, it's not returning anything. That function needs to take a mutable pointer, check that it isn't null, and then dereference it, which is unsafe, of course, to get an actual Rust reference to a point. Once we have that reference, we can perform the translation in a normal rustic way. We could implement and then call point.translate, for example. We don't have to do anything special once we're done here, because Rust doesn't have any notion of ownership. And from the Rust perspective, we relinquish the borrow that we've created as soon as we're done with this function. But of course, we can also simply mutate the point in place on the seaside, and the code sample I've included does exactly that. This is not optimal. We're back to having shared mutable state, and moreover, shared mutable state across a language boundary. Oh no. At this point, we pretty much might as well just write all of this in C. What we can do instead is define opaque pointers. Doing this, we expose the existence of the type, but we don't make it repr C, and we don't expose its internal fields at all. When we declare it on the C side, we don't declare its internal details either. We write something like typedef struct opaque point, opaque point T, which gives us a name, opaque point T, which points to this type, but we don't have any of the internal details. Then, on the Rust side, we can write an opaque point just like the point we wrote earlier, but here we'll leave our fields private, they're public in the point I was talking through a second ago, and we don't give any way to construct that on the C side that way. We also don't have any way to modify it on the C side of things. Instead, we're going to create and expose another function on the Rust side. It has a signature, no mangle, pub function, opaque point new, taking X and Y as C floats and returning a mutable pointer to an opaque point. To make it return that mutable pointer to an opaque point, we create the instance like we normally would in Rust, opaque point with the X and Y values. We wrap that in a box, and then we call the box-associated function into raw on the result. And this gives us the pointer we need. This should sound familiar. It's very like what we did with C strings. We'll also need a new function that we can use to describe the point's value, because again, we don't have access to its internals on the C side. Here, we can just combine a bunch of other pieces we've seen already. We can implement display for this type like any other, and then we could expose an opaque point describe function, which takes a pointer to an opaque point. Then we can call format on it and generate a C string from the result, and then return a reference to that C string. Finally, if we do this, we're responsible to call free for those strings we returned, as well as for the opaque point itself when we're done with it. We can reuse the same free Rust string function we defined earlier, but we also need to define an opaque point free function, which inverts the process by which we got the pointer in the first place. 
As with strings, if it's already null, we just ignore it, so we don't call free on it or try to drop it twice. Otherwise, we do the unsafe operation box from raw, and then we do nothing. It'll just properly execute its drop implementation as soon as it goes out of scope, which will clean up both the allocated opaque point and the box which was wrapping it. And you have to do it this way. You will cause a memory leak if you do it any other way because... This is how Rust knows to go ahead and properly deallocate that heap-allocated memory that is a box. And opaque types like this are a super useful way of making sure that we can expose Rust types to other languages while still actually maintaining all the invariants that are required for Rust's usage of them to be useful, that is, safe. Before we wrap up, I'm going to quickly survey three other types you should understand for FFI, unions, enums, and tuples. The first of those, a union, is a type that C has that safe Rust doesn't. A union is kind of like an enum. It's a single type which can represent a variety of different shapes. But where Rust's enums are checked by the compiler because they're tagged and can be differentiated based on that tag, unions are not. You can think of the result type as being a union of the two types it contains, but with a tag, compiler checked, that specifies whether it's the OK value or the error value. Unions don't have that tag. You just write a union like this, union int or float with open curlies and then int i32 and float f32 and close curlies. And once you've written that, you can create a union with syntax that looks like struct initializer syntax, but you can only assign one of those variants. So you could write int or float open curlies int 42 close curlies, or you could write int or float open curlies, float 0.5, close curlies. But you couldn't write a declaration that included both int and float. Once you have a union, accessing its internals requires an unsafe block because you can access int or float in this example, regardless of which one is actually defined. And so you can hose yourself very badly because, well, ints and floats have different representations in memory. And as you can imagine, that gets much more complicated with more complicated types and therefore much worse with more complicated types. The show notes have a sample implementation of an either union type, which is very similar to result. The main thing to take away from this and from that code sample is that Rust's union types interoperate correctly with C's unions, as long as you mark them with repr C on the Rust type definition. You might also care about union types because Rust enums interoperate with C using unions. C's enum types, after all, aren't up to the task, since they're essentially just names for integer values. But if you put repr C on a Rust enum, it will be laid out in memory as a union with a Rust enum defining the tags and a struct for each variant of the union. Then you still have to do the work of defining those types on the C side, but at least that way you can impose some type safety on the interop with enums. And there are more important details on this in RFC 2195, which defined all of that, so I encourage you to read it. It's linked in the show notes. Finally, C has no notion of tuples, so languages which consume Rust vc APIs can't interact with Rust tuples, even if the language in question does have its own notion of tuples. You can work around this by using a full-on struct to pass data back and forth, and using conversions between your tuple types and those struct types. The distinction between a tuple and a tuple struct here is important. You actually can use tuple structs because tuples are anonymous types, while tuple structs have type names, and that lets us write corresponding types in C for them. If you do that, you use index style names for the fields, underscore zero, underscore one, and so on. There is, of course, far more that could be said about CFFI. 
But that should be enough to get you started, and it's plenty for one episode. Next week, I'll be back with a Crates You Should Know episode, which dives into a crate that makes all of this way, way easier. Thanks, as always, to this month's $10 or more sponsors, including Arun Kolshreshtha, Matt Rudder, Soren Bramer-Schmidt, Dan Abrams, Olushe Shonaya, Anthony Deschamps, Evan Stahl, Nick Gidio, Dominic Cooney, Embark Studios, Scott Moeller, Benjamin Manns, Daniel Mason, Jonathan Knapp, Nick Stevens, Jeff May, Benam Esfabod, Johan Anderson, Nathan Scully, James Higgins II, John Rudnick, Zach Peters, Chip, Jerome Froelich, Andrew Dirksen, Joseph Schrag, Brian McAllister, Brian Stitt, Rafe Levine, Nicholas Poche, Ryan Osiel, Jason Bowen, Jacob Denar, Michael McDonnell, Adam Green, Alexander Payne, Rob Chuk, David Carroll, Ramon Buckland, Martin Huschober, Peter Tillemans, Paul Naranja, Graham Willadol, Olaf Adei, Christian Paul, and Daniel Collin. You can sponsor the show and join that increasingly and probably long list at patreon.com slash neurostation or via a number of other services on the show website, neurostation.com. The website also has show notes, including lots of code for today, links to things I talked about, this script, and interview transcripts. This episode's notes are at neurostation.com slash show underscore notes slash E031. Please do recommend the show to others if you're enjoying it. And please do contact me. I love hearing from you, whether that's at Chris Kreitcher or at Neurostation on Twitter or via email at hello at neurostation.com. Until next time, happy coding.